0: Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. As a social tribal species, one of our most critical attributes is the ability to form interpersonal bonds, to build trust, to listen, to connect, and to believe. We all tend to think that we can tell when someone is being open and honest with us, and when we are being deceived. And this belief emanates both from our body, our gut level response, that involves feeling another's energy and relative level of sympathetic arousal, while unconsciously interpreting nonverbal cues such as microexpressions of the face. And this belief that we can detect truth comes from our conscious mind, our analytical, slow, logical, methodical system of thinking and mulling and remembering. When our gut or somatic response matches our conscious analytical assessment, then we tend to default to believing. But when they don't match, We shifted disbelieving. I recently watched the Netflix documentary Amanda Knox, which explored how and why she was convicted of a murder she didn't commit. Amanda wasn't believed because she didn't seem stricken or devastated enough by the murder of a roommate. She kissed her boyfriend passionately outside as the Italian police investigated the crime scene. She winked at her boyfriend in the courtroom. She smiled and giggled at the wrong times, and then even made up a false story at one point to try to deflect the brutal heat of the interrogation. In today's story, we hear Janine describe the awful consequences of not being believed. Not being believed about sexual trauma, not being believed about emerging psychotic symptoms, not being believed about being desperately suicidal for years. Janine and I explore the complex reasons why she wasn't believed, and one of these should be clear to all of you as you listen to this story. For Janine often has, what we call in psychiatry, inappropriate affect. Janine describes awful things in a calm, even cheerful way, punctuated by nervous giggles. She speaks about pain in an unusually calm and factual matter. And like Amanda Knox, Janine was judged to be suspect, a false reporter, someone who just doesn't look or act as they should. But eventually, Janine was believed, and then her healing could finally begin.
1: Well, from the outside, we kind of had a perfect family. Married parents, one boy, one girl. Dog. (laughs) Typical. I lived in a pretty wealthy family. My dad was a politician, worked a lot, and my mom stayed home with us, I guess. But she was pretty absent. Um, she'd go through mood swings and manias and depressions. So they got divorced when I was about 11. And they. Fi- I think they knew something was wrong with me because I was a little odd. Because <laughs> I was suicidal as a little kid.
0: Well, how little?
1: Well, probably starting at eight. But um.
0: Was that trauma-based? That was trauma-based. Mm.
1: Yeah. Because the trauma started when I was like... My first memory was of when I was... Five, and that's when the PTSD started, I'm pretty sure. I had a pretty traumatic childhood, which is weird because from the outside, it looked perfect. Mm-hmm. But my best friend died when I was little in a car accident. And so things you can't comprehend when you're little. But then you hear the story when you're older, and it's like horrific.
0: Mm-hmm. And sexual trauma started young.
1: Yeah, about age five mm-hmm. is my first memory of it. And that was by one person. And then that stopped. And then another person started, (laughs) and then that stopped. And then my brother started Mm. molesting me and then eventually raping me Mm -hmm. hundreds of times. So, Mm.
0: and your parents had no idea. No. Yeah. Why do you think they missed that?
1: Well, they shouldn't have because he was caught molesting somebody else. And they sent him to a therapist, and the therapist said it was sexual, normal sexual exploration Mm. for what he did to the other kid. And that's not. (laughs) <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. And did your parents know that you were getting suicidal as a little eight-year-old?
1: Well, I'd leave, like, I'd draw, like, morbid pictures, like, of skeletons and people dying. And I'd leave, like, I didn't want to be with my family. Like, I'd leave Post-it notes all over the house saying, I'm running away. <laughs> but they never really thought much of it. Mm-hmm. But,
0: yeah. I mean, your mom, as you mentioned before, had pretty severe mental illness. Yeah. She was maybe just unable to really...
1: Right, because when Keep I was like, after my parents divorce, we moved to a different house, my mom, my brother and I, and um, she would just lay in bed all day, like all day, all night, curtains drawn, just getting up to pee, or, like having us go to her purse to get money for her because she couldn't cook, so we had to take care of ourselves, so.
0: Mm. so she's too ill to really follow what's happening with you in dad's absence.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Because he was working like 80 hours a week hmm. when I was little. And then they divorced and I rarely saw him the first couple of years. And then I eventually got kicked out when I was 14 over an Easter basket. And I moved in with my dad. And that's kind of how our relationship started. Hmm.
0: And how did that progress? If, if by eight years old, you're starting to get suicidal? What did that start to look like in your teenage years?
1: Um, I drank a lot of alcohol and smoked a lot of weed because <laughs> it was um my escape. Like I was just suicidal all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. And did you try to reach out to anybody or ask for help or um, alert family or about people the abuse? Kind
1: of, but the school, like, because my dad was pretty prominent in the city. Like when I did something wrong, I didn't hear about it. They just told my dad, and my dad would do nothing. Like the school knew I was an alcoholic my senior year and they told my dad and he was like, oh, it's fine. She drinks at home. (laughs) Mm. You know, kind of like a poo poo everything, you Mm
0: -hmm. know. Do you remember what that felt like as a little girl to have no one watching, no one really caring for you or protecting you?
1: Yeah. Well, and it's funny because now when I talk about it to family and friends now, like older friends, they're like, well, why don't you tell us? Because we would have taken you in like. We would have loved to have you in our family,
0: Hmm. but um, that's not how it works when you're eight or ten or or eleven. Because
1: when I first tried to tell on my brother, I was nine, and I remember I was telling my friend about it, and she like just freaked out, and she's like, "He's not supposed to do that." And Hmm. then I thought I was doing something wrong, so that was the last time I ever tried to tell anyone. Really, Mm -hmm. I just I felt like I was doing something wrong and letting it happen or whatever. But
0: Mm -hmm. I wonder did. You have so much trauma as a kid that it started to feel normal or was there? Oh yeah, a... it was just normal. That's just I felt was.
1: like my, when I was little, I felt like my whole purpose on earth was to be a victim. Mm. Like to be abused. Oh. But yeah.
0: That's so sad. So yet you, I mean, part of you is, is kind of falling apart, but another part of you is still actually doing well in school.
1: Oh yeah. And I, I even had like, untreated ADHD. And like, I would not go to classes. I would spend most of my time roaming the halls and sitting. I never sat in my chair. Like I couldn't sit still. (laughs) So I'd like sit on the countertops or on top of the desk. And I was always in the hallway and the resource officer was always getting mad at me. And I skipped a lot of classes. And it was just easy for me because I never had to study. And everything was just super easy. And then I got to college and was in for a big surprise.
0: Yeah, do you remember? Did you think that getting away to college would maybe fix things? You thought, I oh can, yeah, I'd get out of this, get, get out of Nebraska, get mm-hmm. out of this town, get out of this family, and yeah. if I can finally just start my own life. That's that
1: yeah, that's I what can, me and my dad did. We moved out here because we wanted a fresh start. Mm-hmm. Because people in the head people in Nebraska knew what my brother had done in that kind of stuff and my dad I think wanted to get away from it. Mm-hmm. He didn't want that stigma like attached to him. And I wanted to go to Boulder for school, so we just figured we'd move out here and get in state tuition mm-hmm. after a year. Mm-hmm.
0: So you're coming out to Colorado starting at CU Boulder as a freshman.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And now your dad's actually has heard and accepted the fact that your da- your brother was molesting you. He's...
1: He, he At the beginning point, when we were still in Colorado, it took him years to apologize to me for not believing me. Mm. But like when we first moved out here, he still thought it was just consensual mm. between me and my, I'm like, no. <laughs> oh,
0: that's awful. The end of adolescence is usually a time of hope and excitement, a time to leave the nest and start the grand adventure of life. Yet this is also right when people typically have their first episode of psychosis, often between the ages of 18 and 21. With both schizophrenia and some types of schizoaffective disorder, the late teenage years are marked by an excessive autoimmune pruning of the synapses of the brain. And this leads to a type of global short circuiting, which manifests as illogical and delusional thinking. Psychosis classically begins with paranoia. And this was true with Janine. Paranoia develops due to an overactivity in one of the dopamine circuits of the brain, the saliency circuit. Dopamine surges through the saliency circuit when something crucially important happens, often something related to safety or survival. With the early stages of paranoia, excessive releases of dopamine cause people to start to attach profound importance to specific people or places or things. In Janine's case, her history of childhood sexual abuse shaped how the first glimmers of paranoia emerged.
1: The very first instance at my dorm room was horrible because my roommate was bad. She like was making fun of like people who take psych meds and how they're crazy and all these things. And my best my soon-to-be best friend came in when she was saying that. And like, we were both silent and we went into my friend's room and she turned to me and she's like, I take antidepressants. And I'm like, me too. And we became (laughs) best friends after that. Mm -hmm. We're still friends now. I work for her now. So.
0: Mm. Well, that was a
1: fortuitous
0: (laughs) pairing that you got to be with her.
1: Uh Mm -hmm. Summer after my freshman year was the first time I was hospitalized. So I was 19, Mm. maybe 20. It was like right after my birthday, I think. And then that summer, it never got better. Like, sophomore year was horrible. That's when all the real psychosis started and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it came, I thought it was slow, but maybe it was fast. Like, it's just I don't comprehend some of this stuff that happened.
0: Yeah, trying to think back the way a manic episode or a psychotic episode unfolds is, as most people describe, very kind of patchy and dreamy, mm-hmm. and the timelines are very strange and muddled. Yeah. Yeah. But what were your earliest memories that maybe something was really changing around you?
1: Or- well, I didn't know at the time. But as I look back, I think it was just the paranoia started. And I think it was fueled by my trauma. Because the first psychosis that I really went through, I think, was cameras. And I thought there was cameras everywhere watching me. Because I was pretty much like a porn star. <laughs> when I was a kid. So I don't like cameras.
0: So you were filmed as part of your abuse as a mm-hmm. child. Yeah. So um, when that first started in the dorm, the the first paranoid delusions involved being filmed.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like I, I want, didn't want to go to the bathroom anymore. Like I'd check all the drawers and I'd check everywhere I could find. And I stopped showering because I like I didn't want anyone to see me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So then I stopped like taking care of myself like hygiene wise. And then after that kicked in was the shadow people. And so then I didn't even leave my dorm room. Like, that's how my grades went downhill really quick. Mm-hmm.
0: Did you feel you were in danger of being killed or more followed and monitored? Or what? Followed and monitored. Mm-hmm. I
1: didn't think I was going to be killed. I don't think. I just was terrified of them. Yeah. <laughs> Then I started thinking everything was poisoned, like my pills were. Because they had put me on a ton of pills that summer at like West Pines or something. I don't even remember what it was. I thought they were poisoned, my psych meds, so I stopped taking them. And that didn't help things. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's when things really got out of control. And like a couple weeks later, I tried to kill myself again. Mm -hmm. And I did a much better job at it. (laughs) Because I almost succeeded. But it was almost like I'm practicing, is what it felt like. Mm. Practic- of all the time i've tried attempts. to kill myself yeah. <laughs> it's like i'm trying to get better
0: mm. do you remember was that attempt fueled by trauma or was that more fu- fueled by the fear, fear, of, psych- fear of psychosis yeah. yeah were you hearing voices as well
1: yeah, yeah.
0: what was that and like? i was
1: like smelling things that weren't really there like the olfactory hallucinations mm. and tactile hallucinations like i would feel spiders crawling on me and mm. yeah
0: that sounds horrifying yeah and again uh as you've described before we started recording that you didn't know like there wasn't a part of you thinking oh this is a hallucination or this is right real. not like, then. It, it was oh, no. fully 1000 percent real
1: oh yeah yeah and nobody knew right mm-hmm. they just thought i was spoiled like that was the big theme was i was a spoiled brat who wanted attention i'm like who would make this stuff up like why would i want to be crazy mm. <laughs> like why would i want psychosis like mm-hmm. i don't understand
0: wow yeah, looking back, why do you have any theories why you weren't believed, or why you were labeled as a you know, kind of being hysterical? Or I don't you know, like spoiled. my parents
1: didn't believe me, and then it just kept going on. Like my dad had a lot to do with it, I think, because he would tell them there's nothing wrong with me. Like he'd be like, "Oh no, she can't hallucinate. She's never hallucinated." Like mm-hmm. I don't think my dad believes I've ever hallucinated. Mm-hmm. When my friend called, my friend saved me. That one attempt. And she called my dad at 2 a.m. in the morning, and he was like, just call me if she dies. Like, that was his concern over me. (laughs) And he never visited me in the hospital or anything.
0: Just call me if she dies.
1: Mm -hmm. That's Um, what he told her.
0: Because he thought this was you being a sort of crying wolf and and, um, making a big deal out of nothing Mm -hmm. and wanting to be the center of attention. Yep yeah and which
1: is funny because when i was a kid i was so like quiet mm-hmm. like i was not the center of attention
0: mm-hmm. and i wonder if you know like, w- we can never know exactly what's going through someone's mind but if your dad was sort of oscillating between a my daughter you know is this sort of um exaggerating attention seeking yeah histrionic, <laughs> or b she has a really terrible mental illness and that the The reality of number two, that option was so horrible. Like he just couldn't even go there. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: That He had to sort of fully endorse this idea that, oh, my daughter's just making making step up up for attention. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, and like the mental health field agreed with it.
0: One of the many factors that complicates psychiatric diagnosis is that people tend to revert to their most regressed and unhealthy personality styles when they get sick. Although Janine doesn't specifically discuss this, when she was in and out of all those hospitals years ago, she was also given a borderline personality diagnosis. And This is a common thing with complex PTSD. Trauma leads to deeply disordered attachments chronic self-harm, suicidality, and a borderline personality structure. My hunch is that many of the clinicians whom she encountered in those days saw her primarily through the borderline lens, which was consistent with her inappropriate affect and chronic treatment resistance, and they wrote her off as histrionic, as a liar or malingerer.
1: In the beginning, like, I went to... The state hospital, which was horrible, and the social worker there told my dad I was a spoiled brat and he needed to take away all my car my car, and all this stuff and how he needed to kick me out and let me live on my own. And I'm like, who says that? Mm-hmm. Like, they just did not believe me at all. Mm-hmm. And I was still hallucinating. I hallucinated until what, like 2007? Like, um, yeah, about 2007. Mm-hmm. So I hallucinated for like seven years.
0: Yeah. I wonder, again, I didn't know you, know you then, but I wonder if part of it also could have been, in general, you have a pretty friendly, um, easygoing way about you. Like you just, you're kind of gentle and smiling. And I wonder if back then maybe you had still some of that kind of learned, you know, put on a smiling face and look okay.
1: Last, and, I had a flat affect for a long time. Or an inappropriate affect. Mm. Like, when I was sad, I would smile. Mm. Or like, I just wouldn't do anything at all. Mm. But I think that's pretty good at faking. (laughs) Like, trying to fake it, make it better, you know? Mm -hmm.
0: It's almost like they didn't think you looked, quote-unquote, crazy enough. Exactly,
1: yeah.
0: With the inappropriate affect, maybe you were smiling as you were telling them about horrific auditory Mm -hmm. command hallucinations. And they're thinking, oh, what is this? She's making this up. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Cuz you don't think much about it when you're actually hallucinating or you're in psychosis. I like look back and reflect and that's how I can figure out what was going on, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But when it's actually happening, it's hard to tell the difference between reality and a hallucination.
0: Yeah. Do you remember how would you try to find some temporary measure of safety during those times when you're feeling like there are these like, shadow creatures, and you're being filmed, and um, you're hearing voices. I mean, how did you, or were you able to find any way to bring yourself some sense of peace, or I don't know, just respite from this onslaught of terror?
1: No, I think that's why I was in the hospital so much. Mm. Mm-hmm. But
0: there's no relief.
1: Because mm. there was lots of hospitals. Yeah. I think eight different hospitals, 40 different visits, or 40 different hospitalizations.
0: 40 hospitalizations.
1: So if you think about it, that's like over a year in hospital, like if you push them all together. Mm
0: -hmm. When do you remember starting to be believed?
1: I met, uh, when I was at the Peaks, I met a nurse practitioner, and she believed me. She put me on clozapine. She was great. She saved my life, I think. Because mm. everyone told me no. or They told her that I was a lost cause because they had tried over 30 different medications and nothing worked. Mm-hmm. And she was finally like, told me about clozaril, how it's like kind of the last ditch medication, but it works great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just a pain getting blood draws, but like that's what calmed the hallucinations. Yeah. I started seeing a new therapist and i've seen her for 10 years yeah 10 years and she believed me too and like like some of the stuff that happened to me was so crazy and so traumatic and scary and she made me like i i thought maybe it was all in my head mm-hmm. because like who how does that happen mm-hmm. like who lets that happen to a little kid you know but it was real. <laughs> yeah. Gosh,
0: it seems like foundational part of healing and therapy is being believed. Yeah. I mean, we just kind of assume that if we come with something hard to a therapist or a doctor that we're going to be believed, but you have the experience of being discounted and shamed and um, finger-pointed and
1: mm-hmm.
0: really ignored for a long, long time. Have you come to some sort of peace with your father around that? Because you described he was a major part of sort of, if you will, kind of poisoning the well with the people who were trying to help you.
1: Well, my dad's changed a lot. Like, I don't know if it's because he came out of the closet, or he's just more comfortable in the Denver area, but he, like, started hugging me. Like, he never hugged me as a kid. Like, ever. And, like, he hugs me all the time now he's more open and he wrote me a letter saying how he was sorry, how he reacted with me and my brother and how he understands that it was my brother's fault. That was a while ago, but Mm -hmm. so he's, he's gotten better, but he still doesn't get
0: it. Do you feel like you've been able to come to some level of, I don't know if forgiveness is the right word. (sighs) acceptance or some kind of peace with all those years that he didn't believe you. And he
1: he he left me alone with a crazy woman. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I'm pretty much at peace with it. Like Mm -hmm. if I put myself in his shoes, I can kind of understand what he's feeling. Like who wants your kids to know your son is raping your daughter? Mm -hmm. Like who wants to know that? Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm still very suicidal. Like.
0: About that for so many years mm-hmm. that that's kind of a go-to. It's like
1: an easy out. Mm-hmm. Kind of in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then I'm always, I'm also the good thing <laughs> is I also am kind of negative and I'm like, Oh, I can't do it that way. Cause I'll end up brain dead or I'll end up paralyzed or I'll end up blind, you know? So I always have an excuse not to do it. Cause I know every time I've tried to kill myself it never works. <laughs> So it's kind of like, I'm pretty sure I'm not, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, for years, you had many, many, many attempts, and some of them were near fatal. Mm -hmm. And when was your last serious suicide attempt?
1: November 2010. Wow, 10 years. Mm -hmm.
0: So something shifted. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you explain that, that you... Had so many hospitalizations, and you had ECT as well. Is that right?
1: Yeah, twenty-two of them.
0: You had twenty-two electroconvulsive therapy treatments. you were in the state hospital. Over forty hospitalizations. Many, many suicides, some near fatal. And now, ten years, no. As you get, or you said you still struggle even daily with mm-hmm. some suicidal thinking, but no serious attempts in a decade. Correct. Yeah, and you,
1: no self injury in a decade. Yeah,
0: how do you explain that?
1: I think it's more a being believed. I have a great team like a psychiatrist and a therapist and I don't know since I've started seeing them I've got it's just I don't know if it's being believed or what but with my therapist I've I'm working on dissociation because I dissociate a lot um but it's getting better and I think that's helping helping me heal by dealing with the dissociation. educating people like i love it's weird but i love talking about mental illness like i think people need to know about it it needs to be out there like i've talked to high school classes and my friends high school classes and the kids love it and then they're like when i let would leave my friend's class the kids would be like well you don't look crazy mm. and i'm like it's crazy have a look <laughs> <laughs> i mean <laughs> But, like, the kids love my stories, and it's just, it, like, kids will come up and talk to me afterwards and be like, oh, my friend has this, and, you know, and it's just, like, I want to educate people and help people, you know, and just get the word out there. Mm-hmm. I work part-time, very part-time, but I work part-time, I volunteer, I write, I do, like, I do everything, it's just, I know my limits now. Mm-hmm. And once I pass over those limits, everything goes out of control. So,
0: yeah, what kind of limits have you learned that you need to be careful about?
1: I can't work full time. Like every time I've tried, every time I've done, like I when I I have a degree in social work, and for my internship, I was supposed to do full time because that's just what they offer, and I end up having to like I was sick for like seven ten days because I was so suicidal and so depressed and so like out of control like so i, I just i can't do full time like mm. my i just get too unorganized um i get too suicidal i get too depressed um and that's happened every time i've tried to work full time but same with school like it took me what 15 years to finally graduate mm. but i did get my degree so that's nice but
0: and there's such pressure i think spoken and unspoken pressure too Go to school full-time if you're in school or work Mm full-time. I think people can sometimes feel self-conscious if they're working part-time because the question might be, oh, well, are you looking for full-time or when will it become Mm -hmm. full-time? I think in American society that um, that can take people – I've seen that with my patients take years, many years to fully accept that part-time work is not only okay, it's – imperative Mm -hmm. that full-time work is just too much
1: yeah well and i have a great job and i love the kids i work with so Mm -hmm. (laughs) it makes it easy but like even then like i couldn't do it full-time even if it was with the same kids because i'm a nanny and even with those same kids i couldn't do it Mm full-time but i have a dog and my dog's like great like he knows when i'm sad and he'll jump on me and like cuddle with me and but Really, like, what keeps me going is, like, the kids I work with. Like, I don't know. They keep me going. Just knowing that there's someone, like, someone relying on me. Like, even my dog. Like, what would happen if I died? Like, my dad would take him, but he would miss me. Poor thing whines every time I leave the house, you know? like, um, Mm -hmm. And, like, what would the girls do if I, like... I to like, if I had committed suicide, like those girls would be devastated, mm-hmm. and they're at an age when they would like, they know what's going on. It's so, like a suicide would like really upset them,
0: yeah. You know, I wonder when I think about you a decade and more ago when you were so suicidal, so many attempts versus now. I wonder if one of, I mean, there's a number of things that have changed, including your medication, Clozapine, relationship with your dad, and but if one of the Big things grounding you, keeping you from killing yourself is just what you said. These connections feeling like you, like you matter, like people would miss
1: you. Right. Like you- in the beginning, I never thought like that. Mm-hmm. I was always like, no one wants me around. Like I'm around just to be a punching bag, basically. So that was one of the reasons I was always trying to kill myself was because why not? Like my life was so painful. Like, mm-hmm.
0: Like you were kind of a burden. You mm-hmm. were not con- really meaningfully connected to anything or anyone. So, yeah. better to just disappear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas now, yeah, you, there'd be a huge amount of loss because you're connected to some people mm-hmm. deeply.
1: I know I was very lucky because I should have been on the streets. Because, you know, you see a homeless person and my dad will be like, oh, they're just lazy. I'm like, no, that could have been me. But it came from a wealthy family with connections. And so I got all the treatment.
0: Yeah. I know that is a really scary thought that if you hadn't had the financial backstop of your dad. Because he wasn't much of an emotional backstop (laughs) for a long time, but he could at least... Keep you from being homeless or dead.
1: Well, and if it was like forty hospitalizations, so let's say like three hundred and sixty-five days, hundred dollars a day. But <laughs> that's a lot of money. Thousand dollars a day. Yeah, yeah that's not. Yeah. Right. Well, a, the insurance covered it except for a hundred. Oh, okay, there was a hundred dollar copay, yeah, but still, that's like thousands of dollars. Yeah. That, yeah. That he had to pay, and like when I went to the eating disorder clinic, he wouldn't pay the copay. He was like, there's nothing wrong with you, you're fat. I'm like, that's not the deal. It's the fact that I'm, like, vomiting every time I eat. No, you're fat. Doesn't matter. (laughs) Mm. But, yeah, so I had to pay for my own eating disorder treatment.
0: Yeah. Do you think this has opened your dad's mind that actually mental illness does exist and that there are people out there that are suffering terribly that are not just, you know, making it up or need to...
1: He has friends who are psychologists, too, and... I think that's helped him to understand me more because he was just so impatient. Like and I think his friends have like talked to him. Mm-hmm. But like I'll meet like other families and how their children are like destroying their lives. Like they're so psychotic and they're so out of control. And like I'll be like it gets better. That's how I was. My dad hated it, but I have decades later. Yeah. <laughs> I'm finally like stable. So like, there's hope, mm-hmm. especially for like people with kids who are like psychotic and they don't know what to do with them, like kids who are threatening to kill them every day, and like they have nothing to do. And I'm like, give them a closet piece. <laughs> and then
0: <laughs> yeah, and help them find someone who will believe them and connect with them. And yeah, yeah. But right, that's a hard, that's a hard journey. I'm. Gonna, I think we're gonna do an episode here soon about. The difficult path of finding the right therapist. Because, mm-hmm. you know, boy, for so many people, that is a brutal journey. Didn't you say you had a psychiatrist suggest to you that if you were going to kill yourself, you should use a certain med?
1: Uh-huh. At the state hospital. No, not state hospital. At one of the psych hospitals. I had, like, tried to kill myself. Um, and then I went, they hospitalized me. and He's like, oh, if you really want to die, you should take this. And I was like, okay. And then, what, eight months later, I did what he said. But I stopped before I, like, finished. Because my cousin called me and was like, oh, I love you and all this. And I was like, oh, maybe someone does care. And I went to the hospital and, like, they didn't think it was a big deal. Because most people don't overdose on it because it's a pill for elderly people usually. And so young people don't overdose on it. So they didn't know how bad it was until they got the numbers from my lab results and the doctor there in the er when i went in was like you're wasting my time and the taxpayers money mm. and i was like okay i just took these pills and then he was like oh and he didn't believe me until the labs came back and then like i had to have fresh fresh frozen plasma and mm. infusions and stuff and yeah. And then I did it again on the same pills a year later, and that time I almost died. At one point they said, you're going to die, and there's nothing we can do about it. When I was in the ICU. Mm-hmm.
0: Did it feel like, when that psychiatrist said you should use this particular medication to kill yourself, that, that you were a hopeless case? Mm-hmm. That he was maybe out of his kind of unconscious, sadistic, counter-transference, he was...
1: I don't think he thought I would do it. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, okay.
0: (laughs) Yeah. But again, it seems like the unspoken message there is there's nothing we can do for you. Mm -hmm. Like, maybe you should just uh,
1: finish it. And finish
0: this, right? Because you keep rotating in and out of the hospital. And yeah, there's no hope for you. Yeah. That's so sad. Or it sounds also to me like he. Was not well managing the complicated emotions that come up when you're working with somebody who's really suicidal and keeps being suicidal. Mm -hmm. Because for a therapist or doctor, that's really scary and can get frustrating. Can even bring up the therapist or doctor's own anger. Like, why do you keep doing this? Like, Mm -hmm. why why are you locked in this suicidal cycle? And it's almost like a Freudian slip on his part. Mm I don't even know. I'm guessing it wasn't even necessarily super conscious did he just put that out there as
1: as yeah he was new too so i had never seen him before and he didn't know i had two huge charts (laughs) at the hospital so i'd been that to that hospital like 27 times and i think he was just like oh she's just attention seeking or something and so i think mm -hmm. he told me because he didn't think i'd do it
0: Mm. i'm glad you've glad you survived i'm really grateful that you came to tell the story and This is a brave and vulnerable and i hope really hopeful helpful thing for people to hear because you have been through it and you're still in it but you just have a measure of kind of peace and acceptance and and definitely connection that sounds like you didn't have for a long 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 time